Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We continue moving through the Christmas season together, and this weekend marks the second Sunday after Christmas. It's also the last. Christmas is 12 days long, so it can only hold the two. And when we gather again next weekend, we'll be celebrating Epiphany. But for now, again, we we wrap up this Christmas season together, uh, celebrating the birth of our Savior all those years ago in the city of Bethlehem. Our text for this weekend, Old Testament reading, is from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 through 15. The epistle is from Ephesians chapter 1, it's verses 3 to 14. And the gospel is Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. So we start out the Old Testament text, 1 Kings 3, 4 to 15. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Yahweh my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Before we dig into those verses, uh, the history of, of this book, uh, First Kings is really a history book. It, it depicts what has happened in the nation of God's people, both Israel and Judah, after their split. They haven't split yet. There's still one at the point of this text. It depicts everything from Solomon, Israel's third king, ultimately then through the end of both kingdoms. So we're just past the year 1000 BC with Solomon. So in the 900s, I guess you'd call it the early 900s BC. I think that refers to like the 990s or the 980s. On the other side, on AD, we'd call that late. But I think it's early. Maybe it's, I don't know. You get the picture. And Solomon is still young, a young king. It goes from that time, and it stretches all the way through 587 B.C., and a little after that, uh, with the destruction of, of Jerusalem by Babylon. So roughly 400 years worth of Israel's history contained in the book of Kings. And in our English Bibles, it's divided into First and Second Kings. And the, the original Hebrew Bible and the original Hebrew text it wasn't a subdivided book. It was just one there is no first and second kings. It's just kings. Uh, so you can consider it that way too. So verse 4, Solomon, the king, goes to Gibeon. Gibeon's about five miles off to the northwest of the city of Jerusalem. And he, you know, he goes there to sacrifice. But I can't tell you why he's chosen to sacrifice there. It doesn't make sense. The given reason here is it was the great high place. But that begs the question, should it have been? At this point in Israel's history, they have had the tabernacle for, I don't know, 450 years. And that tabernacle contains the Ark of the Covenant. And that tabernacle contains also uh, the altar for burnt offerings. That is where Israel was supposed to focus their worship. That was to be the center. And yet here we see Solomon going off to a different location and offering a substantial amount, right? It's not like he just took one bowl there on one occasion. He used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Used to offer. Indicates 
more than once. Solomon has done this, and he's done it often, is kind of the appearance that we're getting. And so again, I don't know the why. I'm not sure what's going on here. But nonetheless, with these substantial offerings, and used to offer also eh, used to offer also suggests that he no longer does, which is Perhaps the case as we wrap up the text in verse 15, when we see him offer offerings in Jerusalem instead. But we'll come to that here in a little bit. First, verse 5 is going to really get us to the point of what's going on here. As, as he's doing this, and he's, he's sleeping at this site, Yahweh appears to him and offers him a blank check offers the king of his people anything the king wants. I mean, that's a that's a sizable offering from God to Solomon. And we can quickly imagine whatever our sinful natures might want to ask for. Perhaps the first thing that would pop into your head might not be a sinful thought, though. Solomon's isn't. And that's one of the, the aims of this, this text for our day together today. Solomon's first thought is not selfish at all. It's going to come in verse 9. First, though, as Solomon responds in verse 6, he praises God. You have shown great and steadfast love. Steadfast love is a tremendous Old Testament word indicating the faithfulness of God to his people. And he's done it. He's done precisely that to Solomon's father, David. So David is God's servant, Solomon's father. Which implies about Solomon himself that he is God's servant. Right? And he, he will say that himself in verse 8. So if, if my dad is a, a servant to someone else, then I am their servant by birth. He continues by saying and acknowledging his father's greatness as a king. That his father was faithful, that he was righteous, he was upright most of the time. Um, Solomon is the offspring of Bathsheba, and that is really the one great sin of David that we have identified in Scripture for us in particular. That's the one that stands out. And yet, even in the midst of having committed the atrocious sin that he did with that family, David's still described as being righteous and upright. There is forgiveness in the Lord. He does forget our sins um, and can see us this way even in spite of what we have done. So Solomon acknowledges all that God has done for David and that he is still doing. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love. So that's the second time we've had that phrase. And he's done so by giving David a son that sits on the throne. That's the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God would keep a descendant of David's on the throne who would reign over Israel forever. Ultimately, that's going to be fulfilled by Jesus. But Solomon's the first generation. He's the, the one who, at the moment, is filling that throne, which eventually will be filled by Jesus. David's kingdom, his leadership over God's people, is seen here, and now Solomon is in that position, and as Solomon reflects on this, he does so very, very humbly. Again, he, he is a servant, right? You have made your servant, Solomon, king in place of David, though I am but a little child. So a couple of different humbling words there showing us the, the personality of Solomon, at least early in his life. And this is a good good position for him to be in. He's He's actually working well. He's, he's speaking well. He's doing what God would have him do. And he acknowledges in verse 8 just how 
great the people of God are. Uh, great as in numerous. Uh, there's so many of them. Who can count them? How can I rule them? Is essentially the question at hand here. Solomon is wanting to do the right thing. He's wanting to be God's servant. And he's asking God for help in doing this. So that's what we get in verse 9. Solomon's answer, finally, after a couple of verses of speaking praise to God, Solomon's answer for this blank check offering of God is not for himself. It's a great request. It is not self-serving. It is not selfish, but is instead serving his neighbor. And this is what Jesus has given us to do as we think of the New Testament instruction, as we talk of a purpose of life that we have as Christians. It's to love God and to love our neighbor. It goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. You can sum them up, all ten of them, into those two phrases. Love God, love your neighbor. Solomon here is doing exactly that. He wants to love God. He wants to serve him faithfully. And he wants to love his neighbor. He wants to help them. He wants to serve them well. This is a humble young king. It is sad that that humility doesn't last. Old-aged Solomon is very different than this young king is. It's hard to know exactly the timeline of his life and, and how all that plays out. But you can read about it in the next seven chapters worth of the book of Kings. We'll go ahead and finish the text, verses 10 through 15. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So the Lord responds to Solomon's request very positively. Uh, he, he is rejoicing. God is thankful. Uh, he is pleased. Uh, that Solomon is responding in this way, not seeking after himself. You know, you get the list there from God. Long life. Yeah, many people wish for a long life. Riches. That I would have guessed that would be the most popular answer if we took a, a poll, even in the church today. Or the life of your enemies. That would probably be the least popular of the three if we took a poll today uh, in the church. But... As a king, yeah, that would be a more prominent answer. More popular answer if we polled the leaders of this world today. Those who have opposed them. Those who even threaten them. And we talked about this not long ago. You know, this is still the Christmas season. And that great prophecy of Isaiah 7, uh, uh, the virgin birth, is preceded by God offering a blank check to King Ahaz. Ask for anything you want, as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. God would give it to him to prove to him that he is God and that he will care for him. In the very context in that midst, Ahaz is afraid. He is fearing two enemy nations, Israel to the north and their ally Syria. He could have asked God for anything. He could have asked God to destroy his enemies. And God would have done it. But he chose not to. And so God gave him a sign instead. And that is the sign that we now know to this day, thanks to Matthew chapter 1, as being a prophecy about the Savior, a Messiah who would be virgin born into this world. So there's a, a great connection of that text to our, our reading for this weekend. 
Solomon has not asked for himself, but has instead asked for understanding to discern what is right, the way God phrases it here. So to discern, to be able to lead, to be able to care for people. Uh, discerning is the ability to judge between two things or more and identify what is good and what isn't. Solomon wants to be able to discern so that he can care for others. And God is going to do this for him. He's going to make him both wise and discerning to the extent that no one will be that wise or discerning before or after him. That's quite a promise. That's quite a gift. That means Solomon is the wisest and most discerning man in the history of creation. Jesus aside. And because Solomon's request was not for himself, God offers to also then fill Solomon anyway. So he gave Solomon his request of helping others, and he blessed Solomon with many financial, worldly gifts as well, riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So the riches and honor is not necessarily a, an all-time statement like the wisdom is. So it's possible that there have been others in the history of the world richer than Solomon. As you think of today's, well, we just had our first trillionaire not long ago. I think it was Bezos, uh, the, the guy that is behind the Amazon fortune, Jeff Bezos. So, yeah, I mean, it is possible that our, our wealthiest people today have more wealth than Solomon did then. But they don't have more wisdom. That's a promise here. Verse 14, God also promises the long life part. So he has the riches. So God, in verse 11, God mentioned that Solomon doesn't ask for a long life. God promises a long life in verse 14. Or riches, God gives him riches in 13. Or the life of his enemies, and it doesn't quite counter that one, but close. He gives him honor. And so instead of his enemies being destroyed, maybe his enemies here are coming to honor Solomon so that they will not be at, at war, but at peace together, which is true of Solomon's kingdom and his reign for the most part. It is a much more peaceable reign than his father David's. So if, if Solomon will be faithful, then God will lengthen his days. For a time, this is true. But again, at the end of his life, at least, Solomon wanders off. As we come to verse 15, Solomon awakes from this dream, and he travels to Jerusalem. He goes those five miles um, back home to where he is ruler over this people. That's where the, the palace of Solomon will be. It's where the temple of God will be. And for the moment, Solomon comes to stand before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, that is, that is God's throne in the midst of his people. Where is this Ark at is an important question in the text. I mean, the text itself not revealing that for us, at least not in our passage that we have today. I'm trying to flip to my, my brief overview kind of the chronology of the Book of Kings here. See if we can see it. Solomon's reign began in chapter 2. Uh, the building of the temple and the palace will be recorded for us in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So we're not quite there yet. The tabernacle is still the key rather than the temple. Which means that this is a little bit more likely to not be a problem. Had had the temple been built at this point already, then the, the Ark of the Covenant would be sitting in the most holy place in the temple and at that point, that's a permanent structure. The only one allowed to go in there is the high priest once a year. But it is possible that outside of that temple's construction at this point, that Solomon is able to stand before the ark as the ark is being moved, perhaps, as an example of that, so that he's not violating the rules of God, um, coming into the presence of his holiness 
in that most holy place. Again, only one guy could do that every year. That was the high priest. Once a year, day of atonement, to make atonement for the sins of God's people. So, certainly at the very least, something to be cautious around. Uh, this is a very holy thing because it is God's throne. I mean, a man dies in the Old Testament simply for touching the throne. And, and he was trying to stop it from hitting the ground. He was trying to catch it from falling. So Solomon offers up offerings. And that makes it, again, sound like the tabernacle now. As we talked about before with Gibeon, he should have been offering his sacrifices in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and maybe now he is. As he offers up the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, and in addition to these offerings, uh, which you can read about a little more specifically if you want in the first chapters of the book of Leviticus. But otherwise, uh, Solomon offers up a feast for his servants. Uh, they celebrate. Again, this is a faithful young king who wants to follow the Lord, wants to do what is, what is right in his eyes. And he is so thankful that God has blessed him both with wisdom to rule and, and sure, with the worldly gifts as well. Um, that he gets to enjoy. Our epistle text for this weekend is a doozy. I mean, this is this is one of those things where Paul is just pouring out all these words of praise to God, and you could spend a lot of time on each of these words and just unpacking all of this and what it all means. Um, we'll do what we can with it together in terms of a Bible study for us now. As we start out, though, I mean, this is Ephesians chapter 1. So as a reminder, this is the church of Ephesus uh, that Paul is writing to. Ephesus is a port city. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea on the southwest part of what we'd call Turkey now, but they called Asia at that time. So it is a fairly prominent city, and, and Paul is working with them. And so he's, he's sending them this letter. And the letter starts out with this doxology. Um, doxa is Greek for glory, and the ending is basically the Greek word logos, or logos, which is a word. So a word of glory. This is a doxology, is a, a hymn of praise, if you want to phrase it that way. It's a, a glorifying word to the Lord. And so that's what we have here. It starts out with a double blessing. Um, blessing basically going both ways in the text. So this is this often causes people to wonder what it means to bless another person. And that's a good question. We would often talk about God's blessings to us as being these gifts that he has given to us. You know, as we saw with King Solomon for example, God blessed Solomon with wisdom. God blessed Solomon with riches and honor and long life. Well, okay. So God blesses us with these great gifts. That's wonderful. But the chapter starts out, or the verse starts out for today, blessed be God. How does that work? How do gifts go to God? And we see this a little more specifically stated sometimes where we will see in the text, you know, a person saying that they are blessing God. And I think the most helpful way I've ever heard this explained is essentially being able to view blessing based on greater and lesser. So if the greater person is blessing the lesser person, then they are bestowing a gift upon them. So God is greater and we are lesser. If the lesser is blessing the greater, then it is essentially a response of thanksgiving or perhaps praise or, or in that regard. I think that's helpful. I'm not sure if it's entirely necessary with this opening phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Paul is not necessarily the one here blessing God. He's essentially saying, let God be blessed. And the uh, you know, God is. God God is the, the one who is the creator of all things. There, there is nothing here that is not his. Uh, indeed, that's going to fit in 
with the context that that comes that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You know, God has given us everything, and so everything was His to give in the first place. So there's nothing that could be given to Him that He doesn't already have. Yeah, it gets to be a little confusing, perhaps, but at the same time, it's a it's a good conversation. So with that, having addressed this bless word, let's go ahead and read our text. Uh, it's verses three to fourteen. We're going to read the first paragraph first, so 3 to 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God has blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. He has given us anything that we could hope to have. Paul's going to be sharing a lot of those things, including the forgiveness of sins, right? I mean, what greater, maybe not that. I was going to say, what greater gift is there than forgiveness? But there are some that compete, right? In the gift of of having been created in the first place is, is pretty profound. The gift of of a resurrection from the dead, the gift of of paradise that God is creating for us, that we get to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ and and reign over his creation forevermore. So, yeah, there are some really tremendous gifts that God has given to you as a part of his creation, as a part of his family. Um, And we are, we're thankful for them. As, as blessed as Solomon may have been in our Old Testament reading, I'm going to make the case that you are even more blessed than that. Now, it may not be true in the worldly sense of things. You may, you most likely don't have the wealth of Solomon, and that's okay. You have something better. You have Christ himself. And if my reading of 1 Kings is correct you certainly have the better end. As a child of God, uh, it appears that Solomon in his latter years is led astray by his many pagan wives uh, to believe in other gods and to chase after other gods. So I'm not, I think that's around First, First Kings chapter 10 that you would read that if I recall correctly. I'm not convinced that we're going to see Solomon in paradise. And that's a hard word. Because he's described as this, this great king, and he even writes parts of scripture for us. But unless he repented after that particular text is written of him, he was no longer faithful. So I, I contend you are even more blessed than Solomon was. Because it's not about wealth. It's not about living many years. It's not about having a thousand wives. I'm not sure I would call that a blessing. You have life that never ends. You have a family that never ends. Because you have a savior that never ends. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. So even before God created the heavens and the earth, he already knew how everything would play out. That's a, that's that omniscience word that God is all-knowing. Before he created, he already knows. He knew Adam and Eve were going to break his creation. He knew that you would be sitting wherever you're sitting or walking or running or jogging or whatever you're doing. He knew you'd be doing that at this very moment right now. He's known all things. And in his wisdom, he chose you. He chose me. 
to be his child, his children, his family, his bride, the church. That's incredibly profound to think about. That the God who made it all chose you, chose me, and who loves us. And he makes us holy, he makes us blameless. And how does he do this? Well, this is the cross. I mean, this is Christ. This is his work for us that Jesus dies to forgive our sins. And then his righteousness is put on us. As Paul says elsewhere, that we put on Christ. It is not that we are righteous on our own, but because we are in Christ, we are righteous because he is righteous. It's a gift. You know, again, verse three, every blessing, he has given us every gift, every spiritual gift in the heavenly places. Anything he could give us, he gives us. He also has predestined us for adoption. We don't put a lot of stock into the predestined word in the Lutheran church. A lot of other church bodies talk about that word a lot more than we do. Um, what does it mean to be predestined? Well, I mean, in its simplest definition, so uh, destined is what's going to happen. Pre is before. So it's just the same as verse 4, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He already knew at that same time that he would take us to be his children. He would take us to be his sons. That's all it means. From before he created, he already knew I would be his son. And that is worth rejoicing, that God chose to adopt me. Adoption is a strong language uh, word here. It's a, a picture that we can envision, that you take someone who is not a part of your family, someone who, who is in need of, of love and care and support, and you take them and you bring them into your home. You make them a part of your family. You know, that's an active deed, and they don't have a... <laughs> They don't have a big role in that. They don't necessarily even have a say in it, especially if they're really little. Um, and that's how it is of us. You know, God has welcomed you and me into his family. And yeah, we didn't have a say in the matter. And that's okay. Because if I had a say in the matter, I would have run away kicking and screaming. But we were dead in our trespasses. And a dead man cannot run away, nor can a dead man raise himself. But God raised me. God raised you to new life. And he's made you part of his family. And that happens in baptism. If you're wondering when the adoption of sons comes, it is a gift of baptism that occurs for us. Um, you are adopted through Jesus Christ. So through the work of his death and his resurrection, these gifts are given to you. And all praise be to God and his grace. This isn't something we have done. So we praise God for his gifts. It's a good way to think of the word grace, gifts. Um, God's grace to you is his gifts to you. And so we praise him for that. That's going to show up three times. It's going to, I think it's both in the next chat paragraph. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So verse 12 and verse 14 both have that phrase to the praise of his glory. So this is the first time, but it's two more in the text. He has blessed us in the beloved. Beloved. Where does God use that word of someone in the New Testament? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So that's the baptism of Jesus. Also the transfiguration. But we'd probably start at the baptism of Jesus as the reference here. But it's Jesus, period. Uh, who is being referred to. So verse 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Uh, the redemption word to be bought back. Uh, God has bought us back for himself. And not with gold or silver, as Peter says um, in his letter, but instead with his own blood. God has paid the biggest price to, to buy you back for himself, to buy you back from slavery. Hosea has an excellent picture of that, actually has to live an excellent picture of that, uh, that Hosea's wife, Gomer, a prostitute, 
uh, would constantly leave him, uh, cheat on him, and he was to go after her, to forgive her, to bring her back to himself. Eventually, she gets herself into such a bind that he has to buy her back. As she cheated on him with someone else, she cheated on him so miserably that she ended up a, a slave to a, another man. And, and Hosea had to buy her back for himself. And that picture becomes, this is why God does it in the first place, it's a picture of God and his church, of Christ and his bride, that we ran away from him, we rebelled against him, we were unfaithful, we cheated on him with all the idols of our heart, so much so that we were bound to them, we were slaves to our sin, and yet Christ bought us back. He redeemed us. He's forgiven our trespasses. That forgiveness won for us by his blood on the cross, given to you in the absolution when your pastor speaks those beautiful words to you, and also in the Lord's Supper when he places Christ's body and blood into your palm. Take and eat, take and drink. I like the, the two phrases surrounding the number eight there, uh, the verse number in your Bible riches of his grace which he lavished upon us how rich is god god owns it all right god is the the one who's created it all the thousand on a the cattle on a thousand hills they're all his everything in creation is his and what has he done he has lavished it upon you not just given it to you he's lavished it upon you I mean, this is that picture where you've got the kid in the candy store and the, the, all the candy is just being dumped on his head and he gets to enjoy it all. It's all his. Well, it's kind of a good picture of this. God is pouring out all of his gifts on you. It's the picture from, from Psalm 23 uh, where we talk about how our cup runneth over. God and his grace is not cheap he's not he's not uh he's not skimping on on his grace he's not holding back he's giving it all to you he's he's even giving you his kingdom when you think about the big picture in the end so i love those that phrase riches of his grace which he lavished upon us i think that would be a, a great sermon just in itself just to have that phrase give me those eight words or whatever how many ever words that was nine that was close all right wisdom and insight there in verse eight as well now you know it was his wisdom it was his call to do this and then verse nine that he makes known to us the mystery of his will the mystery of his will is salvation uh, it's the the reference to what christ has done it's the gospel good news uh, that has been heard by you and that you have shared with others as well this making known phrase uh, god has revealed it to us He's made it known. He's let us know the gospel. You know, the people for 4,000 years in the Old Testament era, they didn't know the gospel. They had an inkling. They had these promises from God that there was something coming, but they didn't know the fullness of it. It was a mystery to them. Who the Messiah was, exactly what the Messiah would do, those were mysteries. But in Christ, in his incarnation, and in Christmas, that mystery started to be made known. And over the next 30-some years, it plays out until the fullness of it is made known at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and the disciples of God start to preach that all people may hear the good news. And they take that good news promise to all the nations. A plan, again, from the beginning of time, fullness of time, to unite all things. Uh, that's the Christ is the Lord over all. We see that elsewhere as, as Paul writes that all things are subject to him. Um, that's 1 Corinthians 15, I believe. All right, we still have the other paragraph of this text here. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, 
to the praise of his glory. So through Christ, we have an inheritance. That's a reference to paradise, which is a new heaven and a new earth. And we don't know a whole lot more than that. We know we get to be there. We know God will be there. We know it'll be perfect. We know that there will be no sin, but we can't fathom what that looks like. Um, there will be no pain. There will be no death. There will be no tears. There will be no suffering. All of those things are gone. It, the scriptures compare it to a, a feast, you know, a, a heavenly feast, a heavenly banquet, a never-ending feast. That paradise is yours in Christ. That great place that's so great we can't even describe it in its fullness, that no man's eyes have seen, and yet it's yours. That's an incredible thing. We who are the first to hope in Christ. There's a reference to the early church, to the, the 12 apostles. You've got the, the earliest ones who've heard the gospel after Pentecost, the, just the early days. And so they are in Christ to the praise and the glory. I mean, they are rejoicing and being, they, they have received a gift from God and now they might be a gift to others as they share that gospel. So their work of, of preaching the good news as Paul, Paul has done so much in, in the years leading up to writing this letter. It brings others to praise God for his glory. It brings others to that same salvation, that same inheritance of paradise. It's a task that falls to us as well, that we would point others to God's glory, that we would show them who Christ is and what he's done for them, sharing that wondrous good news. So verse 13 points to that, that they believed when they heard the word of truth. So they heard the gospel, the truth from Paul, and they believed it. And once they believed it, they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this is, again, a picture of baptism that's coming here, but also uh, faith coming by hearing, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. They have the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of an inheritance. Well, that's a, a bit of a strange picture. But it's one we can understand. The Holy Spirit is like collateral on a loan or the down payment on a home. He is your guarantee. When you take, well, not take. Well, we can use take in a different phrase. So you, you pawn something in a pawn shop because you needed the cash. When you take the, the money back along with a, whatever ticket or whatever it is that they wrote up for you, that's a guarantee. I, opposite of pawning something, a different perspective similar to that, you know, there's a clock shop here in town. I've got an antique clock, and I don't have a use for it in my house, so I took it to the shop, and they wrote up a ticket for me, and I have that ticket. And when that clock eventually sells, if somebody is interested in it, I take the ticket back to them, and I get... The, the cash, or if I want the clock back, if I'm sick of waiting for it to sell, I can go get it back. It's similar here with the Spirit. Um, the Spirit is the guarantee. The Spirit is in you. You have God's guarantee that this inheritance is yours, and when you receive it, well, then we'll be living with God forever. So the Spirit is the one who points you to this. The Spirit is the one who keeps you solid in this faith, confessing this faith until the day of the last day when we acquire it, when it truly is in our hands, instead of just a, a the hope, not just, instead of being the hope that we look forward to, we'll actually be there. So again, tremendous text. That's a reference to the last day, by the way, uh, when we acquire possession of it. When Christ returns is when that happens. 
So there's so many words in this text, so much beauty in this text of things that we can talk about as the church, um, but only so much time in a podcast. As for our gospel text for the weekend together, it's from Luke chapter 2. It's verses 40 to 52. We actually are concluding the childhood of Jesus, um, all that the scripture gives us, and we've done it within well, depending on when you're listening to these two podcasts, within about a week of each other. So, not a lot in Scripture on the, the infancy or childhood of Jesus. In fact, uh, verse 40 of our text is going to skip 12 years of Jesus' life. And verse 52 of the text is going to skip about 20 years of Jesus' life. So, yeah, not much here. But we're going to go ahead and read this one. It's a familiar account to most, but I think we can unpack it a little deeper for you and add to what you know. So we'll just read the whole thing, because really it's just one paragraph other than verses 40 and 52, which are just bookends. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So again, the two verses at the beginning and the end that indicate to us Jesus growing, um, growing up from just the child that he had been. And having the Lord's favor upon him as he did. God is with him. But the, the meat of our text here today is in, in the middle of that. So what's going on here? This is an annual thing. This is the highlight of the Jewish calendar. It's the Passover feast, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Exodus chapter 12 and chapter 13 where they are told that they have a new calendar that is to revolve around the things of God and not the things of this world. It is to reorient them to look at Christ, well, not Christ, to look at God's redemption. Christ is God, but they didn't know Christ yet in that way. To look at God's redemption as being the starting point of all things. In a way, we've done this as a church today. Our week begins with worship. Our week begins on Sunday instead of ending with worship on Saturday. We've We've reoriented our life around the gospel, around hearing God's word, around receiving the forgiveness of our sins, these wonderful things that we have together from his hand. And so this is the big thing. I mean, this is bigger than your celebration of Christmas. It's bigger than your celebration of Easter. It's bigger than your celebration of Thanksgiving. It's likely bigger than all three of those things put together. The Jewish people were to take a pilgrimage at the time of Passover. They were to leave wherever they were. They were to leave their homes. They were to make the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Now, obviously, this would be hard as the Jewish church would have grown. Um, and this goes away in Christ. You know, we have no reason today to journey to Jerusalem. I mean, you can if you want to. It's just a historical place for us, though. There's no necessity of doing it. But the pilgrimage was a necessity for the Jew. There to go. It's a week-long celebration together. It begins with a holy assembly. 
essentially the, the worship of the entire congregation of, of the Jewish people of Israel, and it ends with a holy assembly on that seventh and final day. And in between, you're in Jerusalem for this, this feast, you're spending time at the temple, you're offering up sacrifices, you're receiving that forgiveness that is won through the sacrifice, you are uh, spending time in the in the the court outside of the temple hearing God's word read aloud and and perhaps a little bit of teaching done on it those kinds of things it's it's a week-long giant congregation gathering and so they've gone Joseph and Mary do this every year they take their children every year and Jesus is 12 so they've been doing this together as a family for 12 years because that's when they got married, right? When Jesus was born, they got married after that point. So they went, they did the customary stuff. That's all over. Verse 43, they leave. The, the week-long feast has ended. They're returning home and they can't find Jesus. It's a strange text to the modern ear. You know, as, as we think of how we parent our kids, especially in 21st century America, it's just like, how could they not know where the Jesus was? You know, I've got a car seat for every kid. I know if a car seat's empty because especially then my other kids are telling me too. It's just like, hey, you forgot so-and-so. They would look out for each other. We would look out for each other. And because our community is so much different than theirs was at that time. You know, it's just us. We look out for our family. We don't have our neighbors necessarily in that regard looking out for our family. It's just a very different picture. There's a couple of hints to that in the text itself. Verse 44, supposing him to be in the group. And then later in that verse, they searched among their relatives and acquaintances. What you have to picture here of this, this traveling is that it's not just a family of five hopping in their car and driving home. This is a giant mass of people that all have to walk back to Galilee anyway. They all have to go back. Well, not all of them. You know, all the people that lived in Galilee, that pilgrimed from Galilee, they returned there. And specifically from Nazareth, you're going to have their, their relatives, their cousins, uh, any siblings that I don't know, maybe Joseph had, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, so they've got perhaps nieces and nephews. So they've got the relatives, but then they've got their friends, they've got their acquaintances. I mean, this is, Galilee is not specifically Jewish necessarily, but to have essentially the entire Jewish population of your village travel this journey together. So, you know, take your subdivision. We'll phrase it that way for most people. If you're in a small town, take your small town, picture it that way. But if you're in a, a suburb or a, an urban setting, take your subdivision, which, you know, has hundreds of houses. And let's just go with the United States average. The U.S. average is, you know, probably around 50% of them claim to be Christian at this point in time. So a couple hundred homes, all of those families, this giant caravan walking together. And that's what they did. I mean, they walked together. They probably sang the Psalms, which were their hymns in the Old Testament. So they're probably singing those as they walk together. Um, they've got likely a few animals that they're, they're using to, to carry their stuff. But you've got this large group. So the kids are playing together. They're running up ahead. They're who knows where. Um, and just it's a... It's a community event to make this trip together. So that's what's going on. That's why Mary and Joseph don't recognize at first that Jesus is missing. But after a day of not seeing their son, that seems odd. And so they start going around inside this large group and saying, hey, have you seen Jesus? Has anyone seen our son? What's going on here? And when they come to the point of realizing no one's seen him, then they're panicked and they, well, 
they hightail it back to Jerusalem. They turn around. They've gone a day's journey. So they've got that day. You can imagine concerned parents that probably didn't take them a full day to get back. Um, a little more hustle in their step than the leisurely walk home would have been. But they get there. And they spend three days searching the city of Jerusalem for Jesus. Again, many of the people listening to this podcast, you are parents or you, you know, you're maybe even your children have grown up and they're out of the house now, but you can imagine what that would have felt like. Your child has been missing at this point for four days. And the panic. And they finally find him. In the temple. 12-year-old Jesus, which is about the age that boys would have been allowed to go into the temple for the first time. Jesus is in the temple, and he's with the teachers. He's listening. He's learning. He's asking them questions. They're, they're interacting. They're engaging with one another. And, and there's a crowd that's gathered around, and, and they, can't, they can't believe this kid. This is the kid. Well, more so, but this is the kid that just blows the rest of the class away. I mean, he knows his stuff. He's really interested. He wants to learn more. And he, he his questions are tough. His questions are challenging. That's this kid. Well, he's not just a kid. He's Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He is our Savior. But the crowd can't believe it. They're amazed. They're they, they are astonished, and the parents are astonished when they see him. Verse 48. And you get Mary's Mary's comment to Jesus, her question to Jesus, which is what every parent has probably said to their teenage kid at some point. Didn't you know we were worried sick about you? I mean, essentially, she's accusing Jesus here of not honoring his parents. And so he points them. Well, he makes a bold statement first. You know, I mean, imagine making such a, a bold statement to a concerned parent. Why were you looking for me? But he then points them to the reality. He points them to the truth. He has not dishonored them because he's been in his father's house. To be in God's house, to, to follow God's will, does not dishonor your parent. You know, the fourth commandment, the, the authority commandment, as we talk about honoring father and mother, those kinds of things, the, the hierarchy exists. So what God says comes before anything else. So if you're following God, then you're not breaking the fourth commandment if you don't do what your parents tell you to do. That's a fine line. We got to be careful when we say something like that because our parents have been given the vocation of parent by God. And so they're supposed to be leading us in the Lord. But and I think this comes through probably more obviously for us in our era when we talk about when our authorities do things they shouldn't or tell us to do things that they shouldn't. So if your parent told you that you can't go to church this weekend, that they, you know, they want to go to a family gathering, so you're not going to church. And you, you tell them that you, you want to go to church, that you're going to go to the Lord's house. That would be a similar example, probably, to this. Putting, prioritizing the things of the Lord over the things of this world. Jesus has not wronged Mary and Joseph. And instead, after this conversation, we see they go back to Nazareth together, and he's, he's submissive to them. He honors them. He does the will of his earthly father and mother as he continues to grow over the next 20-ish years. It's hard to know the exact dating on these things. Um, so the verses that follow our text today are going to indicate that 
you know, the next thing happens in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Tiberius' reign began in 14 AD, so the 15th year would be 28 AD. I know it sounds like it should be 29, but that's how math works, right? If you actually count out starting with 14, when you get to 15, you would be on number 28. So it's the 28th year AD. So the question is, well, what year was Jesus born? And that's somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, um, fitting with the text and the information we have in Scripture. So hard to give an exact number of the years skipped here in verse 52, but it's about 20, give or take a little bit. Um, the note I missed, sorry, as I skipped ahead there in verse 51, a couple of things. First, it says he went down with them. They actually traveled north to go home. But it is down in terms of geography. When you look at the the hillsides of that region, Jerusalem is high up. So you have to descend. You have to descend to leave Jerusalem. You have to go down. So he went down out of Jerusalem and they returned to Nazareth together. Mary, the mother, treasured up all these things in her heart. You know, most moms do that. They treasure the things of their child and what they learn about their children and, and what they get to do with their children. Uh, Mary all the more so, because her son is the son of God. He is the Christ. He is the savior of the world. So they don't understand these things. They don't understand why he had to be in his father's house. They, that, that statement didn't make sense to them. You know, Joseph and Mary aren't God. They're not perfect. They don't understand things all the time, but they are growing in their faith together as husband and wife, together as, as parents who are raising Jesus. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful gift that God gave to them alone, the vocations of being father and mother to God himself.